Um, and so if you've got your Bibles, uh, I want to invite you to take them right now and turn to, well, page one. That's easy enough, right? Go to page one. If you've got a copy of the story with you that you brought with you today, you can, well, you can turn to page one also. That's probably the only time this year that those pages will line up. But uh, if you want to get to page one with us, uh, again, we're kicking off this series called The Story uh, that I'm just so excited about uh, for the next 31 weeks or for 31 weeks this year, because we'll take some breaks along the way. Uh, we're going to be reading through the Bible together, and I just really think it's cool that it's not just Genesis Church, but I was eating lunch this past week with Steve Poe, the pastor of Northview, and they started the story last week. Um, I have friends in Louisville that have done the story. Uh, they did it in 2012, another friend that's doing it right now in Chicago with his church. And so we're partnering, uh, we're joining a number of other churches across the country uh, in reading through the Bible together and using the story, using this book. Uh, this resource, uh, it's not meant to replace your Bible, uh, but it's certainly a, a great resource in helping you to maybe better grasp uh, the entire story of the Bible. And, and I just say to you, if you don't have one of these, I, I'd encourage you to pick one up. But I got to tell you, we don't have many left. We've sold almost 300 of these. And, and I know we've got a few more back at the Info Hub. If you don't have one yet, you can pick one up for $5. Uh, you can go online and purchase one. Uh, you can download it to your Kindle or whatever else you might read. Uh, but also in your worship program, we have uh, some inserts. And so if you want to read your own Bible, uh, you can follow along with those inserts uh, utilizing that reading plan. But uh, h- how many of you read your homework for this week? How many of you read chapter one? Just to look around. All right, give yourselves a hand. That's awesome. Great. Good participation uh, right from the start. If you didn't, just jump in this week with us. And you've got a homework assignment for next week. I sound like you're a high school teacher, right? You've got a homework assignment for next week. It's chapter 2, all right? Keep going. Uh, keep reading with us. And uh, it's important that you read along. It's important that you read for yourself because I think if you're going to get the most out of the story this year, uh, you've really got to engage it in a personal level too because we can only talk about so much. Uh, every week. In fact, it, it's quite a frustrating process as a teacher to try and look at a chapter, chapter one this week and think, okay, what, what can you talk about in, in 30 minutes? But if you're reading on your own, again, you can engage this uh, at a much greater level. But I'd also challenge you to get in a group too, because uh, if you're not in a group yet, we've got a number of groups that are starting this week, a bunch of groups that are working through the story. Uh, if you're a guy, I, I lead a Wednesday morning group. We meet here right at Genesis at 630 on Wednesday mornings. Uh, I said mornings, all right, not p.m. So 6.30 in the morning, you're welcome uh, to jump in with us or to get connected with another group. And again, as Elijah mentioned, we've got an area just outside these doors uh, that will be happy to help you uh, in that. Um, How many of you have either successfully or unsuccessfully tried to read through the Bible from cover to cover, maybe over the course of a year or something. All right, quite a few people, right? Um, well, if you're like me, and, and maybe you're not like me, and so maybe it came as an easy kind of process for you, but, but I, f- I find it very challenging to undertake something like that. Um, because, you know, as you get into Genesis and Exodus, well, you know, those are narratives that are pretty easy to follow along with, but you, you, you sort of start to get tested, you know, when you get into books like Leviticus and you get into books like Numbers. But, but if you really push through those, then, you know, you get to Joshua and Judges, and so you pick up some steam again, and then before you know it, you land in First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, and, and maybe by then you're like, well, you know what? It, it was a great effort, right? I mean, can, can you understand? I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know how challenging it can be. Well, no matter um, how far you ever made it or whether you've even tried to read through the Bible before or not, I, I'm going to bet that you have at least heard, read, or you maybe even could recite Genesis 1-1. 
the very beginning, the very first verse. And you might think to yourself, well, you know, that it, it, it's no big deal, but, but I'm telling you it is. That, that from the very first verse in the Bible, the very first verse in the story, Genesis 1-1, it has a lot to tell us about the very nature of God and about the Bible. In fact, we learn so much about God from these four words, the first four words in Genesis 1-1, which just simply say, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. I mean, think about it. I mean, you only need to read the first four words in the book of Genesis, and we learn a couple of things about the Bible, the story, and about our creator God. And the first one is this, if you're taking notes. The Bible is God's story. I mean, it really is. It it belongs to him. And and I just got to be honest here because sometimes I read the Bible and I like to think it's my story. You know, that it's all for me, that I can get so caught up in what I'm reading and think, okay, well, how does this apply to my life? Or, or what does this mean directly for me in my situation? Or, or what am I supposed to do in this particular situation or with these circumstances that I'm facing right now? But the truth is, it's not always for you right now because it's not your story. And we need to be reminded over and over again that this is God's story. And, and if you read much at all, you know that any good author, you know, one that really wants to keep you engaged, will introduce you to the main character of a particular story as soon as possible. I mean, the author wants you to get to know the main character or get you to relate to him. And the main character, if you remember from literature class, maybe in high school or in college or something like that, is called the protagonist. Well, the Bible has a protagonist, and it's God. And that's important for you to keep in mind as you read through the story with us. And it's important because it means that we can't just take bits and pieces of Scripture and apply them to our situations and just expect them to work out. I mean, have you ever played Bible roulette before? Like, you've got a really tough question, you know, should I take that job? Should we buy that house? Should I marry that person? And so we just kind of randomly open to a page and you point to a verse. And, well, I mean, it really has no application at all whatsoever. Well, the Bible wasn't designed for that. I mean, for instance, you know, you're not David and your problems aren't necessarily Goliath. I mean, if you try and attack every single problem in your life like David attacked Goliath, I mean, you're going to get crushed once in a while. I mean, the difference maker for David in this story is that he recognized that he was really a smaller part of God's story. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't offer wisdom for your life. I mean, as the Apostle Paul wrote, we talked about this verse from Timothy last week, that all scripture is from God. And it is useful for so many things. I mean, there's a ton of wisdom in the Bible for you on how to live your life. But, I mean, the Bible didn't tell me who I should marry. I mean, the Bible didn't tell me what college I should go to or whether or not to buy a house. I mean, reading the Bible helps me to get to know and to understand the heart of God better. And and as you read through the Bible, as you read through the story, you're going to understand his desire for you. You're going to understand his heart. And and his character, and you're going to see for yourself how his word can guide you through life and and better equip you for those situations that come up, those major decisions that you have to make. I mean, the story shows us how we should live. It's just important that we understand and are always reminded that the Bible is God's story. And, And if you were here last week, you may remember how I talked about how the Bible has two sets of stories really working simultaneously. There is God's story, there is God's upper story. And then there is our lower story, and God's story is unchanging, and it's perfect. And and his story details his plan for redemption and how he's creating an eternal people for an eternal place. But without the lens of the upper story, the events of our lower story can look confusing and can look hopeless. I mean, the lower story, and the lower story is that which is happening around us every single day, is, is just filled with moments of confusion in which we feel things like we're too old or 
too small or unqualified or outnumbered. But, but again, in the context of the upper story, where our lower story moments can make sense. And we can find hope in them. You know, we can see God working at all times. The Bible is God's story. And the second thing that we learn from those first four words from Genesis is that God was first. That in the beginning, God, I mean, he existed before anything else. In the beginning, God. I mean, before the universe, before the earth, before the oceans, before the mountains, and anything else in all of creation, there was God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. And he created the heavens and the earth. And so the curtains rise, and God creates. And everything just flows from him. In fact, the Hebrew word here for create is a word that is only used of divine creative activity. I mean, it literally means to bring into existence something from nothing. And that's, the very, and that's just so important for us to understand that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creates, and he pronounced it, all is good. And if you can believe this, I mean, if, if you can land on this one place, if you could allow this truth to be a foundation for your life, I mean, just this one verse, well, well then you'll have no problem believing anything else that's written or recorded in the story. I mean, if God could speak the world into existence, then why couldn't he allow someone like Jonah to survive in the belly of a whale for three days? I mean, if God could create the universe with one breath, well, then why couldn't Jesus feed 5,000 men and their families with five loaves of bread and two fish? But even more than that, if God is powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth with a breath, why couldn't he heal your body or heal your marriage or, or solve your financial problems or bring your kid back or save your brother from drugs or your sister from alcohol? I mean, why couldn't God help you overcome an eating disorder in your life or that addiction? I mean, if God is powerful enough to make everything from nothing, well, then he's surely powerful enough to do something great in you. I mean, don't miss it. You know, Genesis 1-1 might seem like a simple verse, but it's foundational for us in so many ways. You know, in 1996, um, astronomers focused, uh, you might remember, the powerful Hubble Space Telescope on a small and utterly black patch of space uh, right next to the Big Dipper constellation. And what they did is they left the shutter of this particular lens open for 10 days. And you know what they found? 3,000 more galaxies that they never knew existed before. And so there was the entire Milky Way galaxy, and that's the galaxy that we're a part of, which almost every star, every star that we can see with the naked eye, I mean, it's, it's all part of that one galaxy. But scientists now estimate that the universe is made up of 100 billion galaxies. 100 billion. And it wasn't always this way. I mean, in the beginning, God came to a place that was formless, it was empty, it was dark, and the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over this place, and then one day he just went to work creating. And think about that for just a moment. I mean, astronomers estimate that there are anywhere from 200 to 500 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, which again is one of 100, approximately 100 billion galaxies. And just to give you kind of an idea of what that means for us, a sense of what that means. I mean, if our solar system was reduced in size by a factor of a billion, the earth would be the size of a grape. The moon would be slightly larger than a basketball. The sun would be uh, the kind of the diameter, the height of someone like me. Uh, Jupiter would be the size of a grapefruit. And can you guess how big humans would be? The size of a single atom. One single atom. 
I mean, we would be completely invisible to the human eye. But interestingly enough, to God, we are the masterpiece of his creativity. We are his greatest work. In Genesis 1.26, says it like this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, there's something real interesting in this verse right here that I want you to notice. Just, just notice how God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And what does this tell us? I mean, it tells us that God is in three equal but distinct parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit predates us. That in the beginning there was God, there was all of him. There was God the Father, there was God the Son, and there was God the Holy Spirit together in perfect community. And this is so important for you and I to understand and to remember because it's not that he needed to create humans. You know, I've heard it said before, I've heard people say that God created us because he was lonely and that he needed someone to spend time with, but he didn't create us because he was lonely. He created us because he wanted to. He created people like you and me for his glory. And so that we could bring him glory in all that we do. Now, there, there are brilliant people here on this earth and even in this room right now who believe in creation by God. But I've got to tell you, there are brilliant people out there today who believe in the theory of evolution. And one of the problems that I have with evolution is Genesis 1. I mean, it's just Genesis 1 where it tells us quite clearly that God is the one who created nature. And he's the one that created life. I mean, he's the one that created man and woman. And he tells us how he went about it. I mean, I have a difficult time with the theory of evolution because it says that you are here on this earth by accident. But God says that we're here on purpose, that God created us for a purpose, that he had a plan, that there is a reason why people like you and me are on this earth today. You know, I heard the the story of a little girl who went up to her mom and asked her mom about evolution, just basically asked, "Hey, hey, mom, how did mankind begin? And her mom told her, the biblical story of creation and how God created man and then he created woman, Adam and Eve, uh, and he made them in his own image. Well, a few days later, the girl went up to her dad and, and asked the very same question. Dad, how did mankind come to be? And the dad said, well, many years ago, there were these monkeys and one day all of these monkeys started evolving into humans. Well, as you can imagine, this confused the little girl, this daughter, and so she went back to her mom and said, Mom, you said that God created us, but I went to Dad, and he said that we evolved from monkeys. I mean, how can that possibly be? And the woman thought for a minute, and she said, Honey, it's really simple. I explained to you my side of the family, and your dad just basically explained his side of the family to you. I try and refrain from telling too many pastor's jokes, but I just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't hesitate right there. But the Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God. But just remind us that you're not here by accident. That God has you here. That he created, that he formed you in your life for a great reason. I mean, you were created for a purpose. And no other creature on this earth can claim this. I mean, and that indicates why God wants to have a special relationship with you. I mean, that's where we find our worth. That we are loved by the creator in such ways and ways that he does not and cannot love things like animals. I mean, they don't have the capacity to love him or relate to him like we can. And if you're a parent, you get this. I mean, if you're a parent, you can understand what this is like. I I mean, I remember when we had our first. I remember when Joel was was born. I got to be real honest. While my wife was in labor, um, I was on the softball field. And, uh, and here's kind of how the story goes. I mean, we had been to the doctor that morning, and he made the comment, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see you at the hospital in the next day or two. And, 
as the day went on, the after went on, afternoon went on, sure enough, the contractions kind of started to set in. And, and, and so it came time for softball, but my wife's in labor, just pre, you know, preterm labor, right? And, and so I wasn't saying anything about the game. She knew that I had the game. And about the time that came around where I had to leave, she made the comment, well, are you going to your softball game? Men, husbands, you know that this is the test, right? I mean, and in this moment, you're being studied and watched very carefully. And I'm like, softball game, what, what are you talking about? And she goes, no, 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 it's okay. She says, it's going to be a while still. You go play your softball game and then just come home afterwards and, you know, everything will be fine. I'll call you if you need anything. Still the test, all right? I mean, is this real, you know, I mean, and so I'm like, are, are you sure? And she's like, yes, absolutely, go, I'll, I'll be fine. So I went to my game, all right, only because she told me to. And it was like 20 minutes away, but, but every inning when I came back to the bench, I'd call her, hey, how you doing? And, and I remember about the first inning, she's like, well, I mean, the contractions are picking up just a little bit, but, you know, I'm going to be okay. And so we played the second inning, I remember calling her, and again after the third, and I found that at the completion of every inning, the contractions were really starting to pick up. I made the offer to come home, but she said, no, you're fine. Just finish the game and come home. Well, thankfully, we lost by the 10-run rule, all right? And so we were done like in the fifth inning. And as I was on my way home, I called her one more time, and she said, you need to get here immediately, all right? And so, you know, I, I make my way home, run in the house. I took a shower real quick, you know, but only because we lived two blocks from the hospital, literally two blocks. And, I mean, she didn't have the baby for like another six hours. I mean, we had plenty of time, but... I mean, if you're a dad, if you're a parent, man, I mean, you know the blessing and the joy of the birth of a child. And I remember when Joel was born and hearing that first cry and just experiencing that love in that moment, that love that you never thought you could possibly have for someone so much. And, and I'll always remember the moment the doctor gave uh, Joel to Jenny for the very first time. And even in his cries, how he was just immediately comforted by being in his mother's arms. I mean, talk about pure joy, overwhelming joy in a moment like that. You know, when Jenny and I decided to have kids, um, we didn't need to have kids. You know, at least for us in that moment, our, our marriage wasn't hinging on having a child. I mean, we didn't have children because we were lonely. I mean, we had a great marriage, and we used to sleep in, you know. We used to have extra money and things like that, but we wanted someone to share our experience with, someone to go through life with. And the most amazing part of the creation story is that God wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. And in the same way that Jenny and I were when we found out we were having a baby, I mean, all of the showers and getting the baby room ready, I mean, all of creation is God's way of preparing for us to be in community with him, that he no longer wanted to only enjoy the perfect community that he shared with the Son and the Spirit, but he wanted to share it with us too. And we see that in the next text. I mean, after each day, God created something new and he declares it good. But when God created man and woman and he put them together in the garden, look what he said in verse 31. It says that God saw all that he made and it was very good. Notice that he says it was very good. I mean, in the beginning, God's plan was to connect his story with our story. And it was very good. Well, for some time anyways. And we don't know for how long, but for some period of time, people lived in this perfect place called the Garden of Eden, and there was no sin, and there was no pain, and there was no frustration, and there was no hurt, and Adam and Eve had dominion over it all. 
I mean, the Bible says that Adam had the fulfilling job of naming all the animals. And so in all of his creativity, he, he named the hippopotamus and the rhinoceros and the platypus. But I really think he just got tired over time and he finally was like, I don't know, dog, catfish. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it just kind of became that ordinary for him. But in all of this garden, God basically said, hey, you can go wherever you want to go. You can do whatever you want to do. You can eat whatever you want, except of all of the trees that I'm giving to you, there is one that I'm setting apart that you cannot eat from. One limitation. And God said, don't eat from that tree. Just one limit designed to protect our well-being. He gave them one limitation in order to maintain that distance between them and God. And then enter the antagonist. I mean, just like every story has a hero, has a protagonist, every story has an antagonist too, an enemy too. And God's enemy, the devil, enters the picture as a snake which appropriately to me, I, I think is one of the worst creatures uh, on this earth. I mean, I hate snakes, but, but you know how in a lot of stories, I mean, the antagonist has a lovable side. I mean, some positive attributes that, that draw you to him or at, may, at least make you feel sorry for him. I mean, this one, Satan has none of that. I mean, he is pure evil and his goal is to deceive us and to win us away from the love of God. And Genesis 3 is a great picture for how he does that. In fact, this chapter is so important for you to know and to understand uh, because Satan is your enemy too. He is my enemy too. And in this chapter, uh, he gives us a great example for how Satan works in our lives and how he creates doubts in our minds. In fact, just write this down and then we'll talk through it here in just a moment. Um, The enemy often challenges us. One of his tactics is, is to get us to question, deny, and reverse. Question, deny, and reverse. That's his game. That's how he rolls. Um, but, but before we hear how the enemy, enemy does this, I want you to first hear the actual words of God. Uh, they're found on page 4 in the story, or Genesis chapter 2, verse, uh, beginning in verse 16. Uh, here's what God says. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, I want you to watch how the enemy questions, denies, and reverses. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, or page 5. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did you see the question? I mean, do you see how he, he causes us to question? I mean, did God really say... I mean, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, is that what God said? No. And so he questions. But next, watch how he denies. Verse 4, he says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Just notice how he flat out denies the words of God. And this is important because this is a tactic that he still uses with us today. It's to question and to deny the truth of our God. I mean, he still does that today. With things like, you know, did, did God really mean to label that as a sin? I mean, come on. I mean, if God didn't want you to do that, I mean, he wouldn't have made it so fun. I mean, if God didn't want you to cheat like that, he wouldn't have made it so accessible. If, if God didn't want you to look at something like that, I mean, he certainly wouldn't have made it so attractive. And it's okay to live together. It's okay to sleep together. I mean, it's okay. It's 2013. Don't be old-fashioned. It's that question and deny And finally, he reverses in Genesis 3, 5, when the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, notice how he just says the exact 
opposite. It's not bad for you. In fact, it's good for you. I mean, look, hey, God's holding out on you with this one. And this is exactly why Satan is referred to as the father of lies. It's why in in John, why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he calls Satan a thief. He is one who comes to kill and steal and destroy. And ever since this story in Genesis 3, we've given into his lies. Lies like you can be like God or you're not going to hurt anyone but yourself. Or lies like, I mean, you know, God could never use you for anything remotely good. And then in verse 6, it says, when, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And right here in these two verses is one important theme from the whole creation story. Again, it's in your notes. It's this, that God creates and it's good, but sin tears it all apart. God creates and it's good, but sin tears it all apart. I mean, in one move, In one single moment, everything changed. Everything that God had designed, all of this work that went into creation, it was frustrated by our inability to follow instruction. I mean, it's in Genesis 3 that we discover the reason for all the chaos that that, that is present in the world today. I mean, we understand why this world is so messed up to the extent it is. And it's easy for you and me to look at a story like this and think, well, I mean, I I would have never given in. I, I wouldn't have given it all for a piece of fruit for sure you know an apple i mean maybe if it was a chocolate tree or something you know i would you know i would have given in but but the truth is that the enemy knows our weak spots too i mean he knows where you're soft and and he's working all the time to exploit that i mean maybe for you it's food maybe it's a drug or alcohol you know maybe it's something like money or an addiction i mean satan just whispers into your heart i mean do you think this one time do you really think this one time will hurt Maybe it's with you and your, and your marriage right now. I mean, Satan loves to attack marriages. He especially loves to attack Christian marriages because he knows that if he can get in the middle of a marriage, I mean, he can not only damage you, but he can damage your children and maybe even rip apart your whole family. Again, it's just that question, deny, and reverse tactic at work all the time. The devil is a thief. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy And so Adam and Eve, as the story goes, were forced to leave the garden, but this bad stuff didn't end with their expulsion. I mean, the same sinful nature in Adam and Eve that raised its ugly head in their offspring and in the generations following. Uh, The first two children, Cain and Abel, well, we know that Cain killed Abel. And so this evil, this selfish pattern just continued long after they were gone, this decline, this tendency towards sin and evil. I mean, it really just spiraled out of control. The fact is that we all sin. I mean, every single one of us, we all screw up. And what started in, in Genesis, it continues today. I mean, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and we learned this past week, you know, how the lower story, like that story, those events and circumstances that are taking place in our lives every single day, that, that six-foot world, if you would, a horizontal world that we live in, it's there and it's present, but there's an upper story too. And there's this upper story where God is revealing his love and his work at all times. I mean, the lower story is all about sin struggles. And it's all about confusion and frustration. And Adam and Eve's choice, really, it's become our choice every single day. And like Adam and Eve, we have a big problem that needs a solution. I mean, we have an earthly problem 
that requires and demands a heavenly sort of solution. And this problem continues with each and every generation moving further and further from the will of God. Look at how this continues in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil, only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. And then in verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, God was so sick of the condition of his creation that he was ready to destroy it all. But Noah, one man found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, God was able to locate the most righteous person living on the earth at this time. And Noah wasn't perfect, but he found favor in the eyes of God. And so God commanded Noah to build an ark, and he put Noah and his family in this ark along with the whole collection of animals. And God brought rain to the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, he flooded and destroyed the world with this flood. I mean, sin had become such a problem that God was ready to start over. And was there a good reason for doing that? There was. Because for God, his upper story was in play the entire time. And for God, he was starting over with an imperfect man in Noah. And so God spared Noah's life and he spared the lives of his family. And God put a rainbow in the sky and he promised them that he would never again destroy the world with a flood like this. And so while one point of the story is that God creates and it's good, but sin tears it apart. The point here is that God promises and there's hope. That even in the midst of all the confusion, even in the midst of all the chaos, God promises and there is hope. And while Adam and Eve and Cain and Noah and each of us struggle with sinfulness in this lower everyday story that we're living, God even today is still unfolding his upper story. And as we bring this to an end today, I want to just show you and how even in these first chapters here in Genesis, we find some points of hope. We see some evidence of God's perfect story, his upper story at work. You know, I once recently heard a pastor telling the story of a talented landscape artist um, who, who was painting while a number of people uh, looked over his shoulder. And he was painting this kind of bleak winter scene and with these dark mountains in the background. And, and in the foreground, there was the snow and it was swirling around all of the rocks and there were pine trees that you could tell were blowing from the wind. And, and dusk was setting in and again, the dark clouds loomed over the mountain to say that you know there was still some difficulties to come. But But in the background of this particular frigid painting is this man painted in front of this group. There was an isolated cabin that was nestled up against the hillside. And all of a sudden, the artist, with a brief and very simple stroke, transformed the mood of the painting. But he dipped the tip of his brush in some yellow paint, and he put a touch of gold in the window of a cabin. And all of a sudden, the painting took on a whole new life, a whole new appeal for hope and And there was this invitation for warmth and safety. I mean, there really was a window of hope. And the first chapter of the story that you read for this week, I mean, it really paints a a great picture of despair. 
I mean, we're reminded that sin brings isolation and death and loneliness. I mean, there's a sense of hopelessness in the chapter, but in the story of creation, chapter 1, God paints some rays of hope too. In fact, there are a couple of points of hope in this chapter. One of them is in Genesis 3.15, if you're there. uh, It's on page 6. It's the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. I mean, it's the first prediction uh, of the future son, of this future savior in Jesus. And it comes right after Adam and Eve had sinned, and and now God is talking directly to the serpent, to Satan. Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What's he basically saying? God was basically saying to Satan, one day I will send my son Jesus to this earth, and he will come from the lineage of Adam and Eve, and there's going to come a day when you will do some limited damage to my son. You will bruise his heel on a Friday, but make no mistakes, he will smash your face on Sunday, and it will be a permanent blow to your power and influence in this world forever. And the second ray of hope comes right after this. I mean, the Bible says that Adam and Eve were ashamed by their nakedness, and so they attempted to cover their nakedness nakedness with fig leaves. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, or on page 6 there, it says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And I just want you to see here that God does something. He puts animal skins over them. And don't miss this. That meant that God took an animal and shed its blood. And I really think that he did it in the presence of Adam and Eve. And many scholars speculate that this is the first shedding of blood that Adam and Eve had ever witnessed. I mean, this was the first animal death. No death had preceded sin entering the world. And so this would be the first time of many times all throughout the story, all throughout the Old Testament, where God would train his people by animal sacrifice. And with every animal death and sacrifice, he was just teaching them this lesson through repetition over and over again that every time a person sins, it's followed by a shedding of blood. And that is why the book of Hebrews says says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. It's a lesson. It's a reminder for us that we cannot solve the problem of sin on our own, but it's foreshadowing to that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would one day be slaughtered on a cross so that there would be a permanent covering for our sins once and for all, that the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would cleanse us from the penalty of our sins. And just as God looked at Adam and Eve and Noah and saw one righteous man worth saving, I want you to know that he looks at you and me, even with all of our mistakes and all of our flaws, and he sees what Jesus can do for you, and why you're worth saving. And it doesn't matter what you've done. I mean, it doesn't matter how you've lived your life, even up to this point right here today. The promises of God are as true for you today as they are for any other person in this room. God created you with a purpose. He has a great plan for your life, and he sent his his son Jesus for you and for me to take away your sin and my sin. I mean, he died on the cross so that we could have that victory that we could have that redemption. My question for you today is, do you know that forgiveness? Have you experienced that forgiveness that changes everything forever and for always in your life? If not, it's available to you today. Let's pray. God in heaven, your your love for us is... um,
beyond anything that we can imagine. That in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. And that even today you specialize in new beginnings. And God, we thank you. We thank you today that your one and only son's sacrifice allowed us to have our sins taken away forever. And we thank you for the fact that he conquered the grave, giving us hope that we too can live again. And God, I want to pray for every person here today that we might know our purpose, that we might have that confidence that we are here on this earth for a reason and that out of love you created us for your glory in all things. And so I pray for that man or woman, that guy or girl, student here today, that we would know our purpose, that we would find and discover our purpose in you, God, and be encouraged in whatever we might be standing up against even here this morning. That you love us more than anything else. God, we thank you. As we pray here this morning, I just want to acknowledge that I realize that there may be some of you here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't know what forgiveness looks like because you've never received it in your life before. I want you to know today that it's available. That God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, so that you could be loved, that you could be forgiven. And He's made that available to you today, that if you would just open up your heart to Him, you can receive that forgiveness in your life and be changed forever. And I just want to give you an opportunity to do that right now, to invite Jesus in today. And if you want to receive that forgiveness in your life, just pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I need you. I need that love and forgiveness in my life. Free me from pain and frustration. God, help me to find my hope in you and in your son. And to know that victory. God, I thank you. I thank you for prayers and for hope found only in you today. That you change us forever. We thank you for your love. And the greatest love you've ever shown us. And the gift of your son, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.